0: It is a sweet joy for us to gather on the Lord's Day to sing praises to this great God. And perhaps, again, that last psalm that we just sang was new to you, but such precious words for us to consider, even to be reminded that we ought not put our confidence in princes or men. They shall die to dust returning. But He, the great perfect God, steadfast in every way, It is to him we look to and to him that we seek to know more clearly by means of studying his word. I ask and invite you to take your Bible and open to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, the focus before us, the passage likely familiar to many of you, Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 7. As obvious, our pastor is away this Lord's Day. He's presently ministering at another church in our area. So we do remember and pray for him. We'll ask for God's help and blessing as we come to study this passage. Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. The message this morning entitled, But God. We'll read the passage, pray, and then consider what the Lord says to us in his word with one eye on our passage and our other eye on the Lord's table. Ephesians 2. In fact, we'll get a running start going back to chapter 2, verse 1. God's word reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Thus reads God's word. Let's ask for God's help as we come to study this passage. Great and awesome and holy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow before you in all of your majesty and the majesty of your super, supreme and all-sufficient Word, the very word by which we might know you, know ourselves and know the Savior whom you've provided, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask and we do plead that by means of this passage you might show us your glory. That in a new and fresh way we might see and behold you and your greatness. That in beholding you we might be transformed from one level of glory to the next. That we might even with our eye also on the Lord's table see and behold he who has made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, help us, Lord. Open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Unite our hearts that we might fear your name. Satisfy us now this morning with your loving kindness. We ask this for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Have you ever had... The window seat. The window seat on a plane. Admittedly, it doesn't offer much leg room, not a lot of space to stretch. And yet what it does offer, by means of that small window, some pretty great and impressive views. Depending upon a few factors, chief among them the weather, that as the plane rises high in the sky, by means of the window, as you sit in the window seat, you can begin to take in some of the greatest of sights. That the higher the plane flies, the higher the vantage point becomes, the greater, even more sweeping view that's offered. Sweeping, and yet from such heights, Admittedly simple, as all is seen and all is taken in. Reminds me of a few years ago when I had an opportunity on a trip to fly from Raleigh, North Carolina, to Seattle, Washington. And on the last leg of that flight, flying over Spokane, Washington, From that point on to Seattle, the flight flew over the state that I actually grew up in, Washington. And by means of my window seat, there flying across Washington, a sweeping sight up so high and yet so simple, looking down and taking in as we flew west, in fact, beginning to even recognize several landmarks across the state. Looking down from my window, I could make out the major interstate running east to west, Interstate 90, I-90. Looking down and even noticing as it leaves and departs Spokane, it passes through a small town known as Ritzville. And as it hits Ritzville, suddenly it juts west. And I-90 heads across the state, looking down then and taking in a town called Moses Lake, taking in a town near central Washington, Wenatchee, and there soon approaching the airport because of the day and how clear it was, there in the distance making out Mount Rainier, and past it at the very edge of the horizon, Mount St. Helens. A sweeping and simple sight, and to think it all could have been missed were I to be too focused on what was in front of me, there in the window seat. Perhaps a similar dynamic is at stake this morning. Last time we checked the calendar, we're now in the month of August. August. And it seems so many aspects of life seem to start over or reset and start anew when August comes around. Admittedly, it's not January where officially we enter into a new year, but I think you know what I mean and what I'm getting at. Come August, you have a new school year a new year of seminary, a new year of residency, a new season of ministry and life that suddenly uh, begins to pick up in pace and pick up in rigor. You with your calendar, the activities are added, the calendar fills up, all good, all legitimate, all important. And yet good for us to remember there is more than just what is in front of us consider Paul's words in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, as our window seat, where we might this morning look out and look at this passage and take in a sweeping sight of salvation. Sweeping and yet also simple. In fact, to change the imagery True of so much of Ephesians, true especially of our passage, here is a passage that spiritual babes can wade into and splash around in. And yet also depths are presented that even the most mature and advanced in Christ can dive into without fear of ever reaching the bottom. I think good for us then with our eye on the passage and our other eye on the Lord's table to consider and to take in the sweeping sight of salvation that this passage presents to us. In fact, then to work through the passage and to help take in this sweeping sight, our outline this morning is simple, surfacing really up out of the passage. We'll ask three questions. We'll answer with three answers, three simple questions, three simple answers, and facts so simple, each question is but one word, and each answer is but one word. So simple that we can listen and remember, and by God's grace all the more even be prepared to remember and rejoice with what our Savior has done as we soon approach his table. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, the first question that comes to us, simple, yet bringing us and leading us in to behold this sweeping side of salvation, the first question that we ask is this. Who? Answer. God. When our eyes come upon verse 4, here in the text, Paul introduces God that's suddenly now entering into the picture by means of even two words in the passage, but God, God enters the scene. And thus far, the scene... Maybe even as you heard, as we read verses 1 through 3, the scene, the picture, is quite dark and quite depraved. As Paul will begin chapter 2 and walk through verses 1 through 3, he will remind all true Christians what was their condition before they were saved. In other words, the condition for every one of us if we are in Christ, perhaps even if you are not in Christ, your present condition, that every person, every man and woman, every boy and girl, as Paul will say, is dead in their trespasses and sins. That they walked according to the course of the world. They walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That there was once a time where a Christian indulged in the lusts of the flesh. Consumed and dominated by the very thing that would be sinful and offensive to a holy God. That you and I once were a slave to sin and a slave to Satan. Disobedient. Darkened. Or the sum explanation, as Paul will say, dead. And yet, suddenly, breaking into the account as if lightning strikes, and we then hear this loud crash and boom, God enters into the scene in verse 4 but God. And as He enters into the scene, how He changes everything. And in fact, we hear and see God enter in as we ask this question, who, and we answer in the passage, God, we might think because of what's just been described, that as God would appear as the lightning strikes, God's going to appear in his holiness and in his just wrath. And yet, what is it that Paul points to? What is it, even just describing the sinful state of lost humanity, that as God enters into the picture, what Paul will accent? Do you see it in verse 4? But God, how is he described? Who is he and what is he like? He is rich in mercy. Paul reminding us the character of our God. that always, always true for him for all time, before all time and eternity, characteristic of him, that this God is known and noteworthy for being merciful, that he indeed is in fact rich, rich in mercy, richest with no rival. What does it mean? That he's mercy and rich in mercy? That he would look upon those just described in verses 1 through 3. Again, that's, that's you and I this morning. And he looking upon such a sinful people and consider our miserable state would begin to show mercy. An active sympathy, not giving what it is deserved. Again, what is it that we deserve? After what's been described in verses 1 through 3, we should expect God to appear to strike us down in his just wrath because we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And yet, no, he describes God. God is the one who is rich in mercy. Is that how you perceive God this morning? It's amazing because of life and all the factors we face, how that can begin to affect how we think and view God, even for a Christian. Is it possible you've forgotten this aspect of God's character? Or worse, could it be that you've been deceived? I'm sure you've heard of A Tale as Old as Time. Have you heard of the lie as old as time? A lie that goes back to the very beginning in the garden. A lie that would be so powerful and persuasive that it would lead and deceive perfect man and perfect woman in paradise to turn against a good God. What would that lie be? Oh, as it nestles down deep in the mind, presented by the old serpent himself, the lie that god is not all that he makes himself out to be that the lie would be that god is not who you think he is that he's not good not kind not loving not merciful that deep down inside this lies planted often like a splinter in the very back reaches of our mind And how that can begin to infect and affect the way we think and the way that we live. And friend, it's only as we soak our mind in Scripture that we're enabled to extract that lie. And again, it's not just the unbeliever who believes this. The Christian can too. Perhaps you this morning. That a mountain of doubt that has long laid dormant, suddenly has grown active because of the circumstances you find yourself in. But Paul, to help and to enable us to take in this sweeping side of salvation, he points to God and he reminds us, he describes to us He always has been, he always will be, part and parcel with his very character, that we must know and believe that he is rich in mercy. Really, unrivaled in mercy. No one's merciful like God. He's most merciful. He's boundless in mercy. With him, there's no withdrawal limit. He's not there up in heaven as some heavenly scrooge, miserly towards us. No, in fact, to further demonstrate and to further convince us, Paul will take the argument further. With a rapid fire in the richness of God's character. He's rich in mercy, Paul tells us, because he's also rich in love. Paul tells us in verse, verse 4, God is the God who is rich because of his great love with which he loved us. And oh, we do well to linger here for a moment to even further consider the words that Paul uses because Paul here helps us see, even by means of his very specific grammar, that God in his love, he's in a category all of his own. He is the creator, after all, not a creature, that he's not like you and I. In fact, you and I consider when we see someone in a state of misery, you can think the times maybe you've been surfing on television and a commercial comes on with Sarah McLaughlin and it's got the images of the puppies and it has the images of those children and really difficult conditions, and it seems music is often playing. You know what I speak of? And if you stop and watch long enough, suddenly, what do you begin to feel inside? Oh, compassion, mercy. In fact, you might be picking up your phone quick to call the number to help donate. What's happened? Something outside of us has acted upon us to draw out and bring forth that response of mercy. You can think of it like this. We're moved to mercy because of the misery of another. Now, that's good and fine and noble and kind and charitable, but is that how God acts? Is it because God looks upon us and sees our miserable condition that that then activates him to be merciful? Notice what Paul says. That God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. What is it that moves God to show mercy? What causes him to be actively merciful to people in their sinful condition? His own love. That from within his own character, the mystery of all mysteries, what Christians in eternity will wonder for all eternity, why would you show me mercy, God? chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Why, Lord? His own love. In fact, as John Calvin would define it, God is not persuaded or moved from that which is outside himself, but only that it pleased him To love us freely. You know what that means then? That God. God is so unrivaled in his love and mercy. He's not coerced. He's not obligated. He's never backed into the cosmic corner. And because of something outside of him. That then activates him to show kindness. No, no. Welling up within himself a perfect fountain of love, its freeness and its fullness, the God who doesn't, it's not even that he is loving, but rather because he is love. That even from this fountain of love, a stream of mercy would go forth. That's what Paul's accenting. The grammar here is stressing even, bringing out his love, his great love, his great love with which he loved us. It's right then for us to consider this love, as the hymn writer would say, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free And not that it's even general, broadcasted to all without exception. Please note, it is specific, it is particular, it is directed toward, it is set upon us. Because of his great love with which he loved us. That's who this God is. Rich in mercy, rich in love. Paul will even rush forward into verse 5 like he can't contain himself running up a staircase that this God loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. That even the, the love of God is further magnified and seen in a new light because of the object upon which it's placed. Who is that? You and I. Who were we? Dead in our transgressions. That God's love is so magnified when it's placed upon the most unlovely. Again, that, that's, that's us. That's you. That's me. Dear Christian, that's what we were. You, I, Paul even, including himself... We do well even to pause and remember our ultimate problem isn't physical, but spiritual. So much talk today, the world suddenly recognizing there is a problem in the world. And from its perspective and even its own worldview, trying to diagnose what the issue is. Broadly speaking, from the world, the condition it would place upon humans would be that of victim. But you and I are not victims, not in an ultimate sense. The issue isn't that we are sick. The issue isn't that we're less fortunate. The issue isn't even that we're dysfunctional. The issue isn't even that we're broken. But objectively, Paul tells us We were dead in our transgressions. What does that mean? Transgressions. You and I, the transgressor, we have broken God's good and holy law. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Thus, we are spiritually dead while being actively wicked that the world of iniquity would even be in one human heart. And yet while in that very state and condition, not even because of our state and condition, but because of his great love with which he loved us, this God is rich in mercy. That's the first way we can begin to take in the sweeping side of salvation. We ask who? Paul answers, God It brings up a second question, what? Answer, grace. Paul takes us now by the hand to unpack for us, not just the God of salvation, but now even the grace of salvation. In fact, if you've been paying attention in these verses Verses 1 through 3, finally in verse 4, a subject is introduced. And then now in verse 5, as it's been building, we're at last introduced to the main verb. What is that main verb? That even the grand truth that would be communicated? What it is that God has done. Wrapped up in one word, it would be grace. But what what grace has shown... What is it that God has done? Please note verse 5. He made us alive. In fact, not only that, he throws in two more terms. It's as if he's given us grace in three dimensions. He made us alive. Verse 6, he raised us up. Also in verse 6, he seated us. The amazing thing as well, as Paul is pointing to us to take in the sweeping side of salvation, he's laboring because what language can he borrow to capture and record such things? It's as if there is no vocabulary here. The dictionary entry is empty. What does Paul do then? He literally coins new words. Never before appearing until now in Ephesians. And what's the significance even to capture and define these words? The three words, three verbs to be exact, each containing the same prefix. Which is why Paul will say he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up, what's it say? With him He seated us with him, part and parcel with what God has done, part and parcel with grace is the Savior of all grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each word here helping us see in a new light the glory of grace in salvation. does well for us then to pause and recognize what Paul here is waxing eloquent upon is a doctrine known as union with Christ. Union with Christ, such a precious doctrine. And here's what's precious about it. It is true of every Christian. Every Christian. The moment you're saved... From that point on through all of eternity, that when you trust in Jesus and your faith is placed in and upon, even into Jesus Christ, you are united with him. In fact, John Murray, theologian, would say union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is one of the greatest blessings every Christian enjoys. Underlying every aspect of salvation, both what Jesus accomplished and what the Holy Spirit applies when someone is saved. Two words help clarify and explain a little bit what this doctrine is. It is a union that is spiritual. We need to latch on to that. It's not that we're physically united to Christ. No, no, we're spiritually united with Christ. The Holy Spirit enacts this bond whereby us being placed into Christ like links in a chain, distinct yet never divided We are united with the Lord Jesus Christ at the moment of salvation and into all of eternity. Admittedly, it is mysterious, and it certainly is a mystery because only God in Scripture reveals it to us. That's the only way we can know of it. But not only is this union spiritual, it's extensive. What does that mean? Sinclair Ferguson would answer if we are united to Christ, we are united to Him in all He has done for us. What does that mean? In His life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension, that what Christ did physically, we are joined in and also do spiritually. Paul will tease this out in Romans 6. At the end of Colossians 2 into chapter 3, he will bring out implications from it. In fact, Paul will burst out in Galatians 2.20 on this very truth. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So here, we ask, what Paul answers, grace, what is this grace? Us being united with Christ, that God made us alive together with Christ. What wonder that as Christ was made alive, the moment we are saved and united to him, God makes us alive That we're given spiritual life. Again, our condition, we were dead spiritually, but now God quickens us. God regenerates us. And again, this is what God has done, which causes Paul to make explicit what is true of salvation. Do you see it in the middle of verse 5? Really, the end of verse 5? That this salvation is not because of you. It's because of God. By grace, you have been saved. Paul trying to drive it home, grace even being fronted. And for us to remember, salvation is not a joint endeavor or enterprise. Lest we be confused, lest even you sit here today and think, I'm a Christian because of what I've done for God. No, no, that's not how you become a Christian. You don't smuggle in good works. You don't sneak in your own merit. Salvation isn't something you earn or work for. It's certainly not something that you deserve. But rather, God, as the sole active agent, as Spurgeon would say, salvation is all of grace. By grace, you have been saved. You were dead, and note, God, subject, he, made us, object, alive. And that's not all. What else happens because we're united with Christ? He says, second, he's raised us up with him. That as Jesus rose up from the grave on the third day, Christians now spiritually are raised. Meaning now we belong to a new realm. A realm that should shape how we think and how we view everything in life. That's really what Paul brings out in Colossians 3. Do you remember that? If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above, he says. What do we do with our mind? Where are we supposed to set it? On the earth? No, Paul says, set your mind on things above. Not on things on earth. He made us alive with him. He raised us up with him. And wonder of wonders, this grace, he seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Can you believe this this morning? I hope this in some way affects you. I mean, the world looks upon Christians and thinks, oh, there's that ragtag group of conspiracy theorists. I mean, they just believe any and every lie, whatever's pumped to them. The world will look upon a Christian and mock and scoff. The world would look upon this gathering and could not care less. And yet Paul lifting us up helps us see that for every Christian, because you've been united with Christ, not only are you made alive, not only are you raised up, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies every christian given privilege honor access might we even add security sometimes in the christian life a person can spiral low be so discouraged that mountain of doubts activated and you wrestle inside, can I lose my salvation? Perhaps we're scared to ever admit it. But night after night, we lie down on our pillow, and we wrestle, and we wonder, what if God suddenly changes his mind? Maybe it's been a rough week. Maybe we've sunk low in sin, and there's guilt, and there's shame, We confess and we repent but lingering can I lose this? We'll respond to that question with a question can God lose Christ? Can he? No that, that, that's nonsensical Therefore, he cannot lose a Christian. Why? We've been united with Christ. God would just as soon throw Christ out of heaven than throw a Christian out of heaven. Because where Christ is, there his bride is. In the most sacred, special bond, that of union with him. We've been united with him and even raised with him and then even seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. From this, no doubt, we ought to shape our identity, which will shape our thinking, desires, and living, even to help us bear up and persevere the, no doubt, hardships in life. In Calvin puts this in a memorable way. He says, although we are here in the mire and do but crawl about like poor frogs, yet we ought to bear this state patiently since God has so exalted us. This salvation then? We ask what? We answer grace, the grace here in three dimensions, this grace of salvation, we'll even clarify, this grace being saved, it is so much more than not having to go to hell. As wonderful as that is, we we don't minimize that, and Christianity is certainly not less than that, but it's so much more than, Enabling one to sing when someone is saved, I am his and he is mine. This sweeping side of salvation, we ask who? Paul answers, God. We ask what? Paul answers, grace. And oh, we ask a third question. Why? Why? Why would God do this? Why would he, from his own love, again, that's the genesis of this all, the starting point, from his great love with which he loved us, sending forth his son, his son dying in our place, and thus, when we're saved, us being made alive with him, being raised with him, being seated with him, why would God do this? Answer, glory. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 7, a word that captures all that he's saying here. Again, we remember this is the reason God does anything. It is always for his namesake, for his glory. He being most perfect in every way, his glory is our good. He then in creation as he acts the whole universe becoming a theater that constantly shows forth his glory. But oh, in salvation, here with what Paul's describing, it's as if, as Thomas Goodwin would say, God sets up a new stage upon which his attributes are displayed to such a great extent they're shown to their uttermost. Put simply, it's in salvation that you see God's glory displayed in the brightest, greatest way. Again, we ask why. Paul tells us, verse 7, so that. So that, here's the purpose. And by the way, you think if God purposes something, is he going to get what he purposes? Yes. So really you're, you have his purpose and the result as if it's a guaranteed goal. What is that? That in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A wonderful and admittedly wordy way of saying God does all of this. For his glory. When does this happen? Well, Paul says, in the ages to come. When is that? Well, of course, eternity. But I agree with Hodge, Calvin, Baugh, Hendrickson, and Martin Lloyd Jones that it's not limited to eternity, but it even begins now when someone is saved. What does that mean? Now, oh yes, even now, when someone is saved, someone can begin to take in and see God showing the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. And we perk up and we ask, where is it then that God's going to show this glory? I want to know, where is it? Oh, it's in the most unlikely of places. Here. In the church. That as God has formed this spiritual body joining Jew and Gentile together, the church universal but always gathered in a local assembly, that here is the center stage of God pouring forth showing his surpassing riches of grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look ahead to chapter 3. Paul will make explicit really what's implicit here. Ephesians 3, verse 9 and 10, as he considers all that God has done, even in forming this bride, the church, that in verse 10 he says, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through thee. What's he say? What's he say? Church. And who does he do this for? Who's the audience even? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. D- do you get what Paul's saying here? The physical realm often could care less what's happening in the church, but not in the spiritual realm that in some mysterious way he says rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, angels, demons, they look upon the church, they look upon a gathering like this and all other true churches and they marvel and they wonder as God's manifold wisdom is shown and made known. In fact, they even marvel and wonder at this grace that's displayed. Why? They know nothing of it. The angels sinned once and they weren't spared. They can't sing of, they can't rejoice over, they're not recipients of the grace that you and I have received in Christ. Thus they wonder, they marvel at this wisdom. Not only that, Paul will end chapter 3 with his great doxology where God's glory would be made known. He says in verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? That in some unique way already within the church as people are saved and plucked out of the world we can see and behold what Paul says in chapter 2 verse 7 the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness being shown and displayed. That by faith we look around and we see how God is saving people how God is transforming lives. We see people walk through trials and God sustain them. We marvel and wonder how people from so many different backgrounds, so many different experiences, gather together weekly to sing praises to a God they have not yet seen. Let this even elevate in our own thinking, what happens when the church gathers. It's not a drudgery to get up on the Lord's Day, at least it ought not be, it's not time to check the watch, how soon I can bolt out. It's not allowing lesser things compete with this. No, here in this place, verse 7 begins to be made known. As we look and listen and learn and see in and through each other, this God showing the surpassing riches of even his superabounding grace In kindness. Again, Paul's just throwing all these words together. Have you seen them? Mercy, grace, love, now even kindness? Is there a way to parcel them out, perhaps? Mercy, pities, grace, pardons, love. Purchases and protects, kindness provides. And then, when all the books are closed and eternity begins, in fact, no, rather, since there is no time in eternity, when eternity is in new ongoing, fresh ways. God will manifest his surpassing riches of grace in us because we are in Christ. As Martin Lloyd-Jones would wrap up and explain, God has done all this in order that he may present a spectacle to all future ages, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. A sweeping sight of salvation that this passage affords to us like a window seat. Who? God. What? Grace. Why? glory. But doesn't it push us further to ask one more question? How? That's what we come to remember now. Father in heaven, as we bow our heads and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, we come to remember what it is, and where it is, and how it is that we can be saved from our sin. We come to remember what your Son did and accomplished for us and for our salvation even to consider that you, Lord, you, God, so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. That he would die on the cross to take the punishment of sinners, that we could be saved and forgiven and even made alive, risen, and seated with this Savior now and for all eternity. Prepare our mind and our heart, our whole person, Lord, to remember and rejoice what Christ has done for needy sinners like us. We ask this for his sake. Amen.